on Good Friday, uh, 2,000 years ago, Christ was crucified. Um, and tonight, uh, we're, we're joining brothers and sisters of ours. Oh, yeah, you guys can go be seated if you'd like. Yeah. Um, I do, um, I want to speak just for a few short minutes tonight, uh, preach a, a short sermon uh, to, to look a little bit at, at the passage that Anna just read for us, um, the death of, of our Lord, the death of Jesus. Uh, Good Friday, we link arms with our brothers and sisters around the world and throughout history who celebrate, who, who celebrate Holy Week in remembrance of the last week uh, of, of Christ's life on earth before his death um, and resurrection. And so I want to just speak for a few minutes um, about this passage to invite us to look in, uh, to see what God uh, might be teaching us even today. Uh, for many of us, this is an old story. Um, uh, for many of us, we, I mean, many of us have heard this story a lot, and we refer to this a lot when we share, share the gospel, when we re- revisit our faith that Christ died for our sins. But this passage, I think, invites us to dig in, to see what God might reveal to us afresh tonight. Um, the, the, the passage immediately before that one, what Susan just read, we read, we heard that Christ was hung up on a cross, that he was mocked, uh, that people wagged their heads at Jesus, reviling him, uh, saying if, he can, if he's God, then, then, then we'll see if God will deliver him now, because he said he's the son of God. Uh, in verse 45, the beginning of the, this most recent passage that, that Anna just read, we see that darkness covered the whole earth, right? Darkness uh, from, from the ninth hour, or excuse me, from the, from the sixth hour of daylight till the ninth hour, so that's about tw- noon to 3 p.m. Uh, 3 p.m. is approximately the time that Christ died. Um, darkness covered the land, and so there are these cosmic overtones. Um, all of creation was, was zoned in on what was going on at the cross when Jesus, when Jesus was hung. Verse 46, Jesus cries out all alone, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His relationship was severed with God. Onlookers uh, thought that he was calling out to Elijah to save him, but no, he was calling out to God, Eli, Eli. He was lamenting the severance of his relationship with his Father in heaven, and he felt this deeply. This is the only time that Jesus in the Bible says, my God. And in, in this ironic twist, the most, this most intimate reference to his Father, my God, um, he is being forsaken. And with a loud voice, he cries out and yields up his spirit. And so in his death, though, in his death on this Roman cross, uh, Jesus achieved the greatest victory that has ever been won uh, and that ever will be won, and it changed the meaning of victory uh, forever. At the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul said a phrase, uh, wrote a phrase that we've probably heard also many times. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And why did he use that word, ashamed? What is Paul talking about? He uses similar words um, throughout his writings. Um, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel there in Romans 1. Philippians 1, Paul says, I will not be at all ashamed of this ministry. 2 Timothy 1, Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. What did Paul mean by this? What could be shameful about the gospel? And this question is not self-explanatory. It's why we have Matthew chapter 27 uh, to show us that, that this at the center of the gospel is Shame. 
You see, today, the cross um, is often just a decoration. Right? We, we hang crosses on the wall. We put, you know, crosses are dangling uh, on our windshields in our car. They're dangling around our necks. And, we, you know, it's a beautiful decoration. Uh, but for, for the Apostle Paul, for the early church, the cross was a mark of shame and humiliation. For Jesus Christ, the, the cross was a mark. It signified shame and humiliation because crucifixion was one of the most shameful ways that one could be executed. Right? To be crucified, you're paraded through the streets until you're outside the city. Then you're laying upon a cross of wood with pegs driven through your limbs. And then the cross is lifted up vertically, stuck in the ground so that your body just hangs there. Uh, your body weight is pulling down on the pegs causing excruciating pain. In fact, that's, the word, that's where that word comes from, excruciating. Crux is in the middle of that word. It's incredibly painful. And then you're hung there in public, stripped naked and helpless with people looking on in disgust. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals. Uh, it was intense. Uh, it was intentional public humiliation. Um, with it, the state was essentially telling the public, uh, look and learn from this person who we're making an example of. Don't do the same thing uh, that they did. Crucifixion brought great shame upon a criminal, upon the family of a criminal, uh, upon all who were associated with the criminal uh, who was crucified. And this crucifixion is the way that the God of the universe was killed. This past Sunday, Taylor mentioned, Palm Sunday, uh, that Jesus uh, was not the king his people were looking for. Right? Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Uh, not in triumphant celebration, but with tears of pain, um, as he lamented over what he knew he was going to have to do for the sake of his fallen people. Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who taught that salvation was in him and in him alone, that in Jesus, uh, in, in his name, is the only way to find true life. And for him... The king of creation, rather than riding in and taking his seat on the throne, he took his place on the cross, dying a gruesome and painful, shameful death. And this is not what victory is supposed to look like. Right? For all of the onlookers at the time, it was a complete failure. Right? Jesus' followers had either denied their association with him, or they followed this, this parade, parading Jesus out Inside the city, lamenting and sobbing and weeping over what was going on. Jesus' enemies were laughing in derision. They were mocking him for his claims of being king, of being the savior of the world, because saviors don't die. Right? This did not look like victory. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. At the heart of the gospel is the shameful death of the Messiah on a Roman cross. And Paul doesn't try to avoid this detail in order to get to the good parts of the gospel story. Um, this event for Paul is the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul talks about this. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. In Philippians 2, when Paul is giving the Philippian church encouragement for what it looks like to live life as a Christian, he's encouraging them, very famous passage. He points them to this event as what they should model their lives after. Verses 5 through 8 of Philippians 2, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself 
humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So to encourage God's people, Paul points to the death of Jesus, and then he emphasizes it, the very end of that phrase. He, he emphasizes it by saying, Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did Paul emphasize that? This, the center of the gospel story was a point of shame. The cross of Christ, though, is the crux of the gospel, if you will. It is the center of the gospel message. And, and what's truly amazing um, is that God chose this, <laughs> that this event did not catch God by surprise, that this was completely in accordance with God's plan. Christ had to die. He had to be forsaken by God in heaven. When Jesus cried out in verse 46 of Matthew 27, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, right, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he cried that out, we must remember that Jesus willingly chose this outcome. In this very moment, this moment of Christ crying out, having been forsaken by God in heaven, is a glimpse into understanding the character of God. Right? Rather than forsaking his people, God forsook God. He fractured himself that we might not have to be fractured in return. And this is the gospel. Every sin that has ever been committed against God is deserving of punishment and death. And on the cross, the sentence of punishment and death has fallen on Jesus on our behalf and in our place by his own decree as the second person of the Trinity. St. Augustine wrote in the fourth century, the works of the Trinity are indivisible. Father, Son, and Spirit were working together, decided together, Father, Son, and Spirit, that this should happen this way. This was God's plan. When Christ cried out to God, it's because he was doing what he had to do. For millennia, we've been wrestling with this. Uh, it's awful and it's beautiful. Christ died as a substitute for us. Um, and that was his plan. His plan for overcoming the world, right? his plan for proclaiming victory over the powers of the world was submitting himself to suffering and death, submitting to the worst that the world had to offer for the sake of the world he so dearly loved. And the question is this, how could this be victory? Right? How could a shameful death result in the greatest victory ever achieved? It's because Christ's kingdom is not of this world. In his ministry from start to finish, Jesus revealed that the things that are important to us in this world are not the things that are important to him in his kingdom. John records, John 18, 36, that when Pilate uh, essentially asks Jesus why his own people have betrayed him, why they've left him alone uh, and powerless, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would have been fighting that I might, be, might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And this is true we know this to be true. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes about a time when he's pleading with Christ to free him of this pain that he's experiencing. And God's response is simply, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, to have power in this world means that you have strength. To have power in God's kingdom means to be weak. If the war that Jesus was fighting was just 
for control of a part of this world, a little kingdom in Rome, um, to have people obey him, then this ministry would truly have been a failure because he was killed on a cross. But that's not the war that Jesus was fighting. No, he was fighting a war not just for a little part of the world. He was fighting a war for everything. He was fighting for all of creation. And while the world was looking for a display of strength in a moment, God's plan was to come and give himself for the sake of this broken world. And on the cross, this victory changed the, main of, the meaning of the word victory, the meaning of victory for all time. Paul describes it this way in Colossians 2. Christ forgave all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And I want to look back at the text for just one more, just one more time. Because uh, we see the signs of this triumph. We see the signs of Jesus' victory come immediately. Let me just read verses 51 through 54. Christ yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this is the Son of God. That's what happened immediately after Jesus died. There's so much here, but I want to zoom in on just one thing. Verses 52 and 53. The tombs were opened. There's this big earthquake. Rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, which means they were dead, Many of these dead saints were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Immediately after his death, we see that the victory that Christ accomplishment, the, the victory that Christ accomplished was literally freeing the captives. Christ handed himself over to death. He handed himself over to the enemy so that he could storm the enemy's gates, breaking free and declaring victory and letting people out. What appeared from the onlookers in the world to be a hopeless death was in fact a bold-faced conquest. The loud cry of pain that Christ cried on the cross became immediately a loud cry of victory. You might have seen the movie The Pianist. Um, it's, a, it's a very sad movie um, about a pianist, a Jewish pianist during the time of World War II um, who was, who was stolen away and, and imprisoned in one of the concentration camps. And the, the, at the end of that movie, there's this scene uh, where the Allies have declared victory over the Nazis. Um, and there's this incredible series of scenes. Um, I, don't, I didn't see all of it because I was bawling through the series of these scenes. Um, but what happened at the end of World War II when the Allies declared victory is they went into the concentration camps and led the captives out of those concentration camps. And as they led them out, they walked right by the German officials who were standing there in chains. It's, it's an incredibly powerful moment. It was an incredibly powerful moment in history in World War II. The reason I give that example is that that is what Christ has done uh, on a large scale uh, for all time. Christ went, defeated the enemy, and stared the enemy in the face as he led the captives free, and he did this immediately. The tombs were opened, dead were raised. This happens immediately upon the death of Christ. Every soul that is won by Christ 
to Christ is walked right past the face of the enemy in the way that the Jewish prisoners were led right past the Germans as they were led to freedom. Every soul that is one is led right past the face of the enemy. There's no sneaking people by. There's no digging secret tunnels to, to sneak people out of hell. Jesus declared victory, and he snatches people one by one, leading them directly past the enemy. There's great celebration in the church. There is a host of heaven singing praises for every single soul that Jesus rescues from death. God exchanged his godliness for godlessness for us. He willingly chose death so that he could give us life. And this is the gospel. This is what we're pointed to every single time. We read the story of the passion. We read the story of the, the suffering and death of Jesus. The story of the gospel is the story of our Savior, God himself, dying a shameful death so that he could take away our shame. And why? Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. For the joy that was set before him, for the victory that was set before him, for you and me, coming before, coming from the depths of the prison in which we were imprisoned and being raised to life. That is the joy. That is what brings Christ great joy, and that is why he did what he did. And so in closing, what I would say is this. As Christ gave his life, he displayed for us what true life is by showing us what true love is. Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Christ's victory on the cross is a model for us that victory in God's kingdom is not the same as victory in this world. And so the question that I think we're forced to ask is what does victory mean to us? What does victory mean to you? The answer to that question is not self-evident. It needs to be asked and it needs to be answered. And I think the answer to that question is crucial because it determines how you live your life. It's related to a number of other important questions. What do you love the most? What do you think will make you most happy? What are you most afraid of losing? It's related to those questions. But this is uniquely and particularly important because the question of what victory means to you defines what sacrifices you will make in your life. Why would you endure pain and sweat, of get the, the pain and sweat that comes along with getting in shape. You might wonder that, but then when you win that game, when you see yourself losing weight, then you see, oh, the sacrifice is worth it. Victory for you will determine what sacrifices you will make. It will determine what kinds of things you allow to interfere with your time, to mess with your schedule, to mess with your budget. Victory for you will determine what sacrifices you make. And so that's the question. What does victory mean to us? In Christ on the cross, in this story, we see God display for us victory that looks like laying life down. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're reminded on the cross that God invites us to lay our lives down and that in doing that, we will truly find life. If we try to cling to life and cling to our definition of victory, build our little kingdom, then we will lose everything that we are striving for. But if we lay our life down in the beautiful paradox of the kingdom of God, that is where true life is found. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for tonight. 
for this opportunity to remember what you've done for us on the cross. I pray that we would not let this moment pass us by because we know this story so well. I pray that you'd help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul encouraged us to do, as Paul commanded us to do. Lord, that as we meditate on your word, Lord, as we meditate, as we think about what you've done for us, I pray that you would help us to truly lay our lives down. Let us not simply look to the cross with prayerful reverence, but let us be set in motion by the power of the cross. Let us be energized by it, upheld by it, guaranteed by it, secured by it. Lord, let us remember that you give life to the dead. You call into existence the things that do not exist, and you made all of that possible through your work on the cross. Help us to work out what it means to understand victory the way that it truly is. Be with us in Jesus' name.